Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. This is Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. That's all right. And and Robbie did warn me that there might be a baby crying in the background. I said I might cry uh, in the background. Just, yeah. just my general yeah. life choices. So, yeah, we're good. Just Tim, life, man. Yeah, Tim often has to just have a good cry. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, it's sometimes in the middle of a show. So, yes, we do have uh, Robbie Wickens finally returning. That's on us. And uh, <laughs> and Wesley Wickens is making some cameo uh audio appearances in the episode which everybody's going to be pretty happy about i think he's working on his singing at the moment i like it you're gonna yeah. you're gonna raise a singer huh i'll raise whatever it takes risky to, business uh, man risky business yeah <laughs> yeah so say the race car drivers because race car driving is such a clear path to success from go-karting to professional <laughs> sports <laughs> it's super yeah. simple everybody yeah. it's yeah simple it's cheap everybody makes it <laughs> the, the difference is talenting can take you quite far and although i'm sure it's not the case i'm sure it's like there's a lot of talented singers that never actually make a living singing obviously so um yeah good i mean his backup plan can be like stand-up comic because i'm pretty sure that's the only thing less reliable than singer or professional athlete so this is good this is good we're on a path well how'd that work for you tim felt a little personal robbie (laughs) (laughs) Oh man! Uh, yes, we get, we're we here to have... interview you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tim, did you try stand up? I I didn't even know because it was never successful. It's the weirdest thing. I never saw any of his stuff. Yeah, I never saw your Netflix special. They're like giving those things away now. This is great, guys. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, look, uh, as much as we love Tim, the people don't want to hear about him and his failed attempt at a comedy career. They want to hear from Robbie. Uh, Robbie, when we last spoke, we were basically on the precipice of you becoming a professional racing driver in the sense of making a living being a racing driver. And mm-hmm. I remember a conversation that you and I had around this time. So this would have been like 20, late 11, maybe. Uh, yeah, late 11. And, and you were in this sort of bind of you'd been offered like a GP2 ride with a quote unquote guarantee to have a Formula One ride the following year with the little asterisks of as long as nobody with like government funding or a ton of family money comes along and buys a seat out from under you or Mercedes Benz, little known German automaker, 
was offering you a salaried position as a factory driver in the DTM series, which at the time was like one of the coolest, most badass series on the planet. Uh, that must have been a fun time in your life to try to decide which way you were going. It was very positive, but also probably the most nerve wracking, right? Because up until the whole junior categories, you were just fighting to get up as high as you could go. And, and you didn't, you know, I always wanted to try to make it all the way to Formula One. And, you know, if I came short, settle for kind of the next best thing. And, you know, when you have that moment of like, is this it? You know, is this as high as it's going to get? You know, it, it took a, you know, I bounced the idea a few several times and kind of just humming and hawing and both were great opportunities. And it was the first time in my whole career to that point where I almost had like multiple options. I was just going to say, like, it, there was never yeah. really a decision to be made before. Well, it was yeah, kind of like, like, what can I scrape together or what is Red Bull telling me to do? It was for sure. And like my whole junior career in cars, it wasn't particularly a linear progression. You know, I did a lot right. of almost like lateral steps to a similar speed, but a different series and, you know, like F3 and then GP3 and then, you know, up, then went a step up to 3.5 and, you know, but it was, you know, yeah. So from there, um, yeah, I really didn't know if it was time to, you know, put the F1 dream on hold for a little bit and, and you know, take a professional contract with Mercedes and ultimately... It was it was a pretty clear decision after you know some debating. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so, what, was, do you remember like was there a specific either moment or like argument that you heard, or was it just like you were laying in bed one night staring at the ceiling and you were like, okay, this is what I have to do? Um, honestly, there was always doubts. I mean, you know what it's like trying to join, you know, a back of the field team when you're trying to enter into professional motorsport. You know, you have to prove yourself. You're always going to have to beat your teammate, but also money talks, especially when I mean, in all teams, but especially in, you know, teams that are a little less funded. And in, in my case, you know, in my contract in my Formula Renault 3.5 season, if I won the championship, um, I had a race seat, like signed race seat. And I won the championship and I was like, cool, we did it. And then suddenly as well, then you have to find some budget because the team doesn't have enough money. If not, you know, we're basically closing shop and it was like, okay. So then we started searching for money. Like I had for what felt like a lifetime. Right. And, um, yeah. And then I found some, and then a, a French driver, um, found a significant more amount of money than me. And the contract that I had that was signed on my end, um, was not signed returned and I never had a formula one drive. So, and then that's when they proposed the GP2 options with Fridays and reserve driver again. And, and it's like, I felt like I didn't need to do it again or not again, but you know, like I won again, a you know, a parallel championship. Like why do I have to prove myself again in something else? And uh, subsequently, you know, I had the option for Mercedes and a little bit of, yeah, debating with some close friends and family. And it was pretty clear that, uh, one, I grew tired of fighting for money every waking day of my life. Um, but then also just it was a great opportunity and what seemed like once in a lifetime. You know, I don't know if I would get that offer from Mercedes the following season. So right. yeah. we, we, we took it. It was a long-term agreement. And uh, 
suddenly I was a paid professional driver, which was pretty cool. It's 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 such like a, an interesting moment, eh? When you go from like you say that that lifestyle of literally every day of your life, you're just fighting to find money all of a sudden the cash flow is reversed and it's now coming into your pocket rather than just out of your bank account. I mean, that's, I know that the ultimate goal may have been F1 at the time, but that's got to be kind of like a bit of a mic drop moment for you as a young driver and being like, all right, I, I did it. Now I'm a paid professional. For sure. And I mean, I think one thing that, sorry, that's my bad. One thing that I, um, you know, that really kind of hit home for me was, you know, when I was a kid trying to get into cars, it was always such a daunting task. And people said, you know, don't even try formula cars. It's too expensive. You're better off going sports car route. And a lot of people close to me were, were trying to help and guide me. And, and from the very beginning, you know, my goal as a kid was obviously you want to aim as high as you can. And formula one was the top. Um, but I wanted to be a professional race car driver as a, as a career, you know, and, and I wanted to, shoot for the stars and, and, and see where we went. And the only reason why I think I was so set on formula one was because I actually got so close to it, you know, uh, probably a lot closer than I ever thought I would have as, as a 15 year old trying to yeah. get into formula BMW for the first time at 16. Right. So I think after thinking back to like why, you know, I love the sport and what I want to do, I think, you know, the, the answer became pretty clear that, you know, it's not like it was this massive, sacrifice to go race in DTM with Mercedes, right? It was, yeah. it was, uh, again, it was an amazing opportunity. And I think it was just, yeah, I guess a crossroads in my career, you know, I'd never even driven a sports car before and I pretty much had to sign the first right of refusal before I tested. So it was like, I wasn't even sure if I'd like the cars after, you know, only racing, like the last car I drove before that was a formula one car. It's crazy, man. It's funny. Like it's so, like, I know it's so long ago, but it still seems like yesterday. I remember having that conversation with you and, and like just being so proud when you made that call and, and you could wear that very famous logo on your chest and, and go race for them. It was so super cool. And I, you know, I love, we used to have these like Monday afternoon debriefs, you know, we'd, we'd call each other after a race weekend and you'd want to know, you know, what happened in the IndyCar race, what happened in my day. And I want to know what had happened in your day. And we kind of always stayed in touch and always kept really close tabs on each other's careers. And then, you know, you had a very successful stint of six years in DTM. Yeah. 2012 to 2017. And six or seven race wins. Something like that. Yeah. Something like that, you know, did a very good job and, uh, you know, proved yourself year after year. And then Mercedes kind of made this decision of they were going to be pulling out of the series and they offered you, if I remember correctly, like one more year or we'll let you out of your deal if you can find something else to go race. Yep. That must have been a difficult phone call to get because you had made a name for yourself in this series and you were doing well and you're getting paid well and all these things. And all of a sudden they're like, hey, the, the dream's kind of over. You know, you can have one more year, but after that it's done. So what was it like kind of getting that call? And then what was the thought process on, on what was next? Yeah, it was a weird one. It was actually like the Monday after our race in Moscow. Um, the race went well. And, you know, we get a, an email from Toto saying like all hands on deck conference call. 
And I was just like, this isn't good. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what it is, but it can't be good because it's not like he's going to congratulate us on a, on a weekend well done because frankly he hadn't done that prior. So um, yeah, we get the phone call that Mercedes made the decision to um, leave DTM um, and to put their efforts into formula E. Um, You couldn't guarantee if he would take any of us or what, but you know, there's only two race seats in formula E there was six Mercedes DTM drivers and um, they were leaving at the end of the 2018 season. So this was mid midsummer 2017. And um, yeah, like you said, you know, it, they weren't going to force anyone to see out their contracts. All of us had contracts to the end of 2018. So I think obviously it was a bit, I think they sensed this coming for quite a while with the way they structured everyone's agreements to terminate all at the same time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was another one of those situations where, you know, I, I've always been a believer of taking my career in my own hands and I didn't want to trust that they would place me in a place that I, that I wanted to go, you know, and really the options were going sports car racing and GT3 or hopefully try to get the Formula E seat. But that was really kind of, the two, two angles that they, that they had available to them. And, um, you and I have always been talking about, uh, IndyCar and it was always appealing to me. It's where I fell in love with the sport as a kid. And, um, yeah, then, then we started crafting up a bit of a master plan. I still can't believe we pulled it off. (laughs) Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I want to jump in on something here because like, obviously a lot of racers know each other from coming up and, and go-karting together or going through the junior series and stuff together. Your guys' friendship really predates that, right? Like you guys were playing video games together as kids. Like how rare is this that, that both of you became IndyCar drivers? I would say pretty rare. On the rarer side. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) yeah, we, 
met Hinch when I was 12. I think you were 14. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we fell. What, was this, what was this master plan? Well, the master plan dated back to, I guess it was off season 2016. It was, it was New Year's, was it? Yeah. I think. Where um, I wanted to drive an Indy car just because I wanted to see what it was like. And James wanted to try a DTM car. And we're just like, well, Jeff Gordon and Juan Montoya did ride swaps. At and Lewis IMS. Hamilton and Tony Stewart you know? did a ride swap. And like, and we're just like, well, how can we make this happen for ourselves? And we started, you know, figuring out what it would look like. And I pitched it to Mercedes. They were interested. And then James, like so, seemed like to be interested. And then um, suddenly I got a half-day test at Sebring um, preseason. It was like a week before St. Pete. And I was like, because the cars were going straight to St. Pete. I remember like I was the yeah. last person to drive before it loaded up and went. And I was like, God, I hope I don't crash this thing. <laughs> and I just yeah, it blew me away that they trusted me with their actual race car. Um, and Hinch got, you know, the, the lesser end of the deal. He got, you know, uh, the, our taxi car, which the was taxi still, cab. it was, it was still very it, good. It was a one generation old DTM car. Um, but then with manufacturer politics, they, we had to put diffuser blockers in and all of our downforce comes from the diffuser. So I felt, I felt bad for the guy, but he did get to go to Rome. You know, yeah. I went to Sebring. Yeah. Yeah. Real car. <laughs> I- you know, it was, it was to Rome yeah, and right. drove, you know, a, a not so exact car. But, um, and that's really kind of what set the wheels in motion. Cause then throughout the season, I kind of, we all kept in communication, spoke with the team quite a bit. Um, and then James's teammate had some immigration issues around road America in 2017. And, um, I got flown in for Friday as like a, I guess, reserve driver of some sorts. Um, and then I felt like I did a good job there again. And then we kind of just kept dialogue. And before the end so of this. Was was it part of the master plan for James to mess with the lotions um, in immigration status? Like, was that... <laughs> well, <laughs> he either he confirm or deny. <laughs> he didn't do enough of it. I had, he ended up arriving Saturday. Like I had connections, man. It was hard. <laughs> but yeah. And then basically we just, we just kept a good dialogue and kept, talking and before the end of my DTM season, um, which was mid to late October, um, I'd already made my decision. I informed Toto and, and everyone at HWA and management that um, Hockenheim 2017 would be my last DTM race before, before the weekend started. And that was a really, really, uh, yeah, odd feeling, you know, but it was, I was excited for the future ahead. Yeah, it's got to be tough. I mean, six years with one, I mean, in one series, but also with one group, you know, with the same, the same organization to go into your last race, knowing it's your last race. That's definitely got to be an emotional thing. Uh, but I mean, it felt like I was like breaking up with a partner. Yeah, you know? yeah, like, yeah. It was, like <laughs> trying to break the news and like, they were like devastated, but they understood. And it was like this really weird, like meeting afterwards. I'm like, God, I feel yeah. like it broke their heart. Like they're sad, but they're happy for you because, you know, but it's, yeah, it's kind of an awkward awkward situation uh but then you were coming home i mean i know you had said that like one of the goals was eventually to come back and race in north america because you know it's tough being away from family and being away from home and so indycar on top of being just a great series to race in was closer to home and kind of brought you back a little bit and uh yeah two kids that grew up racing go-karts together weren't just back in the same series we were back on the same team which was kind of hilarious and rare and awesome (laughs) um 
obviously a lot, you know, you've spoken a lot about what happened in 2018 and, um, you know, we don't need to kind of hash too much on that part of it. For me, what I want to talk about is, you know, post-accident, you obviously spend a tremendous amount of time recovering and, uh, and rehabbing and doing all these things. What I want to know about is the call that you eventually, because there was never any doubt, I don't think, in anyone's mind, especially yours, that you'd get back behind the wheel of a race car, right? I know that from day one, that was your motivation. And yep. one day in, I guess it was what, 2021? Are you referring to Brian Herta? Yeah. It's when you get a call yeah. from Brian Herta saying, hey, do you want to come drive my race car? Um, yeah, it was, it was probably a late, like early 2021. If I remember correctly. Yeah. Cause we're 2023 now. Yeah. 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 That adds up. I, I was trying to do that math. I'm like that number seems wrong, but the date back, that seems the right yeah. number of years ago. Yeah. So, so Brian, you know, we went, we went over this with about elf being 20 years old, 10 years ago is still 1990. Yeah. I don't want to yeah. talk about that. Yeah. Sure. And we're still in our twenties. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, yeah, Brian called me up, I think just prior to, uh, them racing in Daytona. And he just said, you know, kind of driver to driver, like, do you, do you want to race again? And I said, Brian, of course I do. And he's like, I thought so. Um, he was like, well, right. Let's, let's see if we can do something. There might be an opportunity, um, with Brian Hurd Autosport and Hyundai because they had just signed, um, a driver by the name of Michael Johnson, who was also a paralyzed driver. And Brian Herta Autosport was operating the car for them. And um, so there was already going to be a car existing with hand controls. And it, uh, I was like, oh, that seems fantastic. And then, you know, Brian went off and they started their season. And I continued my rehab and my journey and never really heard from him for a few months. And then probably mid-April, Brian calls me and he asks, you know, what are you doing May 4th? Um, and I said, uh, I don't know, probably just getting ready for the month of May, <laughs> working with the McLaren and the IndyCar team and whatnot. And um, yeah, and then basically Brian said, well, let's go to Mid-Ohio and, and get you in a race car. We have a track day opportunity where we can uh, get you behind the wheel and, and let's see how it goes. And that was kind of the, yeah, great phone call <laughs> and uh, finally got, got my feet wet again, which was an amazing feeling. Also, Hinch is super frozen. <laughs> Um, okay. Well, with the frozen, James, I guess we have to bring you back for a part three. Hey, well, just the one last thing I'll ask just without James being here. I mean, how quickly did it take you to reacclimate to being at a racetrack or was it just like, boom, you're back in? I mean, I think being at the racetrack felt like home cause I had done it for so long, right? Like from, from being a kid. So being back at the paddock, ironically, like the last Cindy car race I finished before my accident was mid Ohio. So going back to Oh, I haven't you know, actually middle. put that together. Yeah. So basically, yeah, Mid-Ohio was the week before the race before Pocono. So right. to um, kind of go back full circle and like that was the next track that I got back into kind of felt poetic in a way, even mm -hmm. though it was purely, purely accidental. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of the car was obviously a little foreign being a, a touring car and then racing with hand controls for obvious reasons was, was unique, but like, the best thing of the pandemic for me was the, the boom of, of esports. You know, I basically right. got 
one, the opportunity to compete against other people and to get a taste for it through, through iRacing and, and everything like that. But then for me, the making it second nature, like the first time I, I drove my, my sim, you know, I kept trying to instinctively use my legs to do things. Right. But then it wouldn't work for, you know, one, I couldn't move my legs, but then, cause like the mental thing, like I'd be like, Oh, and I would like try to react, but nothing would happen. And it's then, funny eh, that like that muscle memory kind of still existed five yeah. years or whatever, well, four years after the last time you'd kind of driven like that. Yeah. And then basically just hours and hours of practice, you know, the 10,000 hours, you can be a professional, mm -hmm. it, it rang true. And, and suddenly one, I was getting a little bit more competitive in, in the esports world. Um, but then more importantly, finally, you know, the hand control situation, my, I guess, dexterity, everything, you know, the feeling of applying the brakes with my hands, throttle with my hands, um, just started becoming second nature. Um, the ironic thing is, is on my sim at home, I use like a Zanardi style, like handbrake off to the side of the steering wheel. Right. And in that TCR car, that's where the clutch is. And just from visual reference, like every time I left the pits, I would reach for what I thought was the brake. Right. But it would be the clutch. And then I would be like, oh, okay. That's, uh, that's that speed it. you up almost. <laughs> yeah. Um, thankfully, it was a pull clutch, not a push clutch, because then it would have been. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but it's just, that's the hardest thing with hand controls right now is basically every car for every person, you know, there's no curriculum for pedals or anything, you know, as yourself, James, as a driver, you can get into any car around the world. doesn't matter if it's left-hand drive, right-hand drive, you know, formula car, stock car, right. touring car, right. The pedal allocation is always exactly the same, right. You know, you basically, apart from learning the brake feel and the throttle sensitivities and whatnot, you know, you don't have to learn the geography of the where fundamentals are. are the same, yeah. you know? Um, and that's one, I think probably the hardest thing for any adaptive driver right now is if you want to progress to the next step, you know, your brake's not always going to be in the same spot because maybe you don't have enough space right. on the steering wheel to have as big of a brake as what you had on, you know? Yeah. So it's, I think that's something I think moving forward, it'd be really cool to have a part of to try regulate something moving forward and try to come up with some form of system for, you know, the next generations of drivers that, that might be disabled and want to get into motorsport and they don't have to, like maybe we can start something where from start to end, it's a system that they can take from car to car and actually not right. much changes. Yeah. Cause again, I'm mean, like you say, the, the, the limitations and space from a, you know, a, a sports car to a open wheel car, or if there was someone that wanted to run a stock car or a sprint car or whatever, every cockpit is different. Layouts are different. The, the mechanics of it yep. all is different. So yeah, it's, it's a completely different design essentially right now for anyone that wants to jump in those. Um, Pretty much. Yeah. So you, you, you adapt as you do and you perform as you do. And your very first race, you end up on the podium at Daytona, which was super cool to see in person. And just, I think for everybody watching at home, uh, and you have a solid year one, but year two, you come back with a, with a vengeance and you guys, at the end of the day, I, I, I hate to like, you know, fast track through two years of, of, you know, what you did and your results and everything. But uh, ultimately, the, the bread and butter and, and the story du jour is the fact that second year back in the car and you are a champion winning driver again. So just kind of walk me through, you know, it was a it was an up and down season. It was a close battle. 
But when it all kind of, you know, hit you on the day that you guys, you and Harry won the championship, you know, what was that kind of emotion and what was that feeling like after everything? I mean, the, the feeling was immediate satisfaction and relief, right? I mean, I think from start to finish, you know, our car, you know, we were all, we were strong, we were strong, but even the races that we had a chance to win, we were actually beaten by our teammates. Um, so it was, we had a lot of second place finishes, but we won the championship purely on consistency. It wasn't one person. It wasn't just, you know, my performance or Harry's performance. It was engineering strategy, car prep mechanics. You know, we won it on reliability. We won it on good strategy, good pit stops, and then good driving. And it was, I think that was probably the, the best feeling about it is it wasn't like I, you know, grab it by its neck and just like achieve something that's impossible. It was everyone did their job. And I think that's what made it feel, feel that much better. Um, but, you know, I'll be honest, I think by the time I made it to the press conference after the race, I was already thinking about what's next. Right? <laughs> I don't know if that's just, I don't know if that's just me. That's just the Robbie Wickens just, in you. <laughs> or, or is that just any driver? I don't know, but it was like, I mean, I think the thing was for me, the way the race finished in, in road Atlanta, um, it ended under safety car because of an accident and it had just started torrential raining. I wrote like oddly enough. Um, so the final like six minutes of the race was under safety car and then it ended under safety car. So like the, I guess like adrenaline release of like crossing the finish line right. and everything. It was like, it's it was a bit even, muted like, I didn't even, under safety yeah, car. I didn't, even, yeah. I didn't even know the race was over. Right, because you know, there was so much rain at that point. Ironically, my my wiper broke, so I didn't have a wiper to get any of the water off my windscreen. So I was just thinking, like, man, if this thing goes back green, one we're on slicks, and two I can't see. So, um, but yeah, so even like the cool down lap, it was just like it felt like what the last seven minutes were like, you know. So by the time we got to the pits, I kind of had got my my screams and cries out, and, and that was pretty calm and cool. And then uh, I saw Carly, which made me cry and then gathered it back up. And then I saw Brian Herta and, and his business partner, Sean Jones, give me a hug. And then like, they said, they're proud of me. And then that just made me cry again. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> I, I was holding it together until that. It's like the, it's like the proud, the proud father, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, uh, it was just, yeah, it was amazing. But I think, uh, yeah, now we're, we're ready to, to see what, what the future brings. Yeah, no, for sure, man. I mean, it's, uh, it was such a cool moment. There were so many people all over the world that were thrilled for you and loved to see it. And look, we all know that it's, it's just the beginning for you because that's just who you are as a person. It's who you are as a driver. And I think everybody listening is, uh, is excited to see what's next, what the next race wins going to be in, what's the, ne the next championship's going to be in. Uh, cause I know there's, there's some more cool stuff in the works and, and hopefully it's all going the right direction. Yeah, we'll see. You know, it, it takes a lot. You know, I think in my junior career, you know, I would always, like we all did, you walk around with a helmet, you know, convincing team owners to give you a chance so you can prove yourself. You know, I feel like I'm back in that generation of my life, but instead of a helmet, it's, you know, I need to find a hand control system for, for the next car and for the next thing. So right. I can't just jump in your car if you're a team owner and, and prove to you what I can do. It, it takes a lot of planning. It takes adaptation. It takes financial resources, engineering resources to, to make that happen. And so we're trying to progress. We're trying to do what we can, but it's, uh, it's an uphill struggle, right? It's an uphill battle and, and we're, For sure. we're, we're getting closer and closer, but it's unfortunately times moving quicker than, than, uh, than us. And 
we're, we're going to keep plugging away and, and see what we can get up to for next year. Well, man, I got faith that you and, and the team that you've got all working towards it will make it happen eventually, sooner rather than later, and uh, and everyone's excited to see it. So, hey, look, I just want to thank you so much for the time. Um, appreciate you coming on. Everybody's been bugging us about when the second episode was coming because they love the first one so much. So thanks for sharing, buddy. Thanks for sharing the story. And uh, and I can't wait for, you know, part three when uh, when we're talking about the next cool thing that you're up to. Sounds good, man. Thanks for having me. This has been Off Track with Hinch and Rossi. Off Track is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts. We're at Ask Off Track on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to follow us on Twitter individually, I'm at Hinchtown. He's Alexander Rossi. And if you want to follow Fim, though we have no idea why you would, he's at the Tim Durham on Twitter. Follow us on YouTube and subscribe to our channel for exclusive video content. Off Track is produced by Tim Durham, and by that we mean Finn. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.